Ephesians chapter 4. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There's only one body one, and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean? But he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to keep the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we will all attain to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of this stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried away by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitfulness schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every point with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Would you pray with me? Lord, you are one God and Father of all. You are over all. You are through all. You are in all since you are all present. Nothing contains you. Rather, you contain all things. Empower us as Mercy Hill Church to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called. And help us to, to live out our faith in you with all humility and gentleness and patience. Help us to bear with one another in love. Lord, enable our leaders here to train and equip the saints for the work of ministry so that the church family will grow and be built up into maturity in Christ. Empower me in this moment to speak your words, not mine. We ask that you would be front and center here, Lord Jesus, that this would be for your glory and credit alone. In Christ's name, amen. Today's message serves as the seventh installment in our verse-by-verse -verse series on the book of Ephesians, and the theme of the book is a manifesto for the church. It could also be described as God's blueprint for his design and purpose for the church, and it's very helpful, very clarifying stuff. In terms of our passage today, the sermon title is this, Unified to Grow, Unified 
to grow. This is, this is the idea uh, of working and, and growing together. Bit of a universal principle. You know, we see this across the board. It's a very positive thing that we see in nature. We see it in sports. We see it in business. We see it in family life. And then, of course, in church life, that when you work together, you move forward together, you grow together. That's the general principle. You probably have that principle in your workplace to some degree. Uh, in terms of what we're looking at, let me let me sort of give you a word picture initially uh, in nature, and that happens to be a Canada goose. Let's look at Canada goose and Canada geese, a flock of these birds. There's a difference between migratory geese and non-migratory. There are some geese that hang around like the lower mainland all year round. They're very lazy birds because they can do that. But most geese are migratory, meaning in the summer, in the spring, they go up north to feed, and then in the winter, they move down south because it gets cold in the winter. That's what they do. And they travel all kinds of distances back and forth, all right? Very long distances. Now, the question is, do geese travel these long distances individually by themselves as sort of lone ranger geese or gooses? Uh, do they, or do they fly together, but when they fly together, they fly somewhat chaotically and haphazardly and it's just a mess. Well, the answer is no. They don't fly individually. They don't fly haphazardly uh, as lone rangers because they would not succeed in getting to their faraway destination if they tried to fly like that. Okay, so what do geese do? You know this. The geese do what's called the flying V. The flying V, not the awesome electric guitar, just so we're clear. There's a great guitar, the Flying V. Anyone have one in the room? We all should have a Flying V. Uh, but anyhow, maybe Danny next Sunday. We'll see what happens. Uh, but anyhow, Flying V, flying formation, okay? And when they fly in a V, it allows Canada geese to fly more efficiently. There's something about how the air moves over their wings, and then the guy behind them or the girl behind them can fly more easily. And it just helps actually everybody fly more efficiently and effectively. In other words, when you fly together, you survive together, and you thrive together. I made that up when I prepared my notes this last week. Isn't that it's just poetic? When you fly together, you survive together, and you thrive together. That's amazing. Poet didn't know it. Anyhow, same thing happens in rowing. Let's talk about sports. Rowing. Uh, you know, you've been to Fort Langley. There's all kinds of people rowing, and it's, it's, it's crazy. And imagine, though, that those rowers in Fort Langley on the Fraser River there, rowing in their own chosen individual direction, okay? And one guy wants to row this way. The other guy's rowing this way, and it's just a mess. Now, will that boat make it to its destination? Will it make it to the finish line? The answer is no, of course not. A rowing team only succeeds, a rowing team only makes it to the finish line if they are pulling in the same direction, you see, thinking less of their own individual pursuit and thinking of the entire team, okay, less of themselves, more of a team mindset, an us mindset. That's a healthy thing to have in team rowing, okay? In fact, when they actually row together, I would argue that that individual rower and their own personal development is, is helped when they row together with others in unison. Think about marriage. I'm not, I'm not done yet with examples. Let's talk about marriage. If mom and dad are not on the same page, okay, um, they're not agreeing with how they should raise their own kids. They actually don't agree with their own core personal values um, in general, um, especially if they're not on the same page with raising the kids in the ways of the Lord. Um, it, it's challenging, okay? And it, it can be inhibitive with the growth of your marriage relationship and, and also it inhibits the growth of the kids, and so disunity 
in marriage equals reverse growth in the marriage situation and, and can be a reverse growth situation with the kids as well. And, and so now we come to the church. This is the church family, Lake Mercy Hill. For us to grow and develop and move forward, for us to increasingly reflect Jesus and look more like him to be transformed into the image of Jesus together for us to thrive as a church family we've got to get on the same page we've got to be unified we've got to get on the same page with Jesus same page with his mission and purpose and that's a beautiful thing when that happens and this is what the Apostle Paul in this passage is instructing us to, to do and to be as a church family how can we protect our unity in Christ what are the specific things that we need to, to do to ensure that our, our church family keeps growing into the image of Christ more and more? How, what are the things that we need to do to protect the unity that we already enjoy and have in Christ himself? That's what we're looking at today. Let us get to work and unpack this a bit. First of all, just in, in an overview sense, you need to know that the beginning of chapter 4, okay? There's six chapters in the book of Ephesians, and the beginning of chapter 4 is a major transition point in the thinking of Paul. What Paul the Apostle, who wrote this book, did as he's inspired by the Holy Spirit was basically the preamble to the practical. Uh, basically what he did in chapters 1 through 3 is flesh out and develop the theology, the doctrine of what the church is in the view of of God and his design for the church, all right? And then later in, verse, in chapters 4 through 6, which we're just starting today, he's now saying, well, if this is who we are, then this is what we need to do, theology and practice. And now we're getting into really the practical side of church life in these last three chapters. So here we go. We're going to begin with verses 1 to 6 in chapter 4. And Paul says a key word, and that key word is therefore. What's it therefore? And Whenever you see and therefore you ask, what is it there for? It's also a transition point for the entire book. And again, Paul beautifully laid out in chapters 1 through 3 this, this image of, of, of the God building his universal church into this beautiful spiritual temple. And we sort of serve as stones in that temple on the foundation of the apostles. And, on the, and Jesus is the cornerstone of this beautiful building. God is gathering more and more people from all nations of the earth throughout, throughout church history and gathering them into his own family to become his own adopted kids into this new family. And they are saved and they are transformed by trusting in Jesus. And it is a wonderful thing. The amazing thing about this, this opportunity that God gives us in being a part of this spiritual temple made up of people is that we can anyone can get in on this. It's there for anybody, no matter their, their background, their race, whoever if they will just place their, their trust in Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved, Paul said. It is by grace you have been saved through faith, faith in Jesus. And this is not something you do on your own by your own effort. No, it is the free gift of God. So all we do, anyone can get in, in on this. You open up the empty hands of faith to receive, and you trust, and you're grateful that you can get in on this beautiful spiritual building that God is building. And he, it's called the church, you see. All right? And now let's walk the talk. That's who we are. Let's now walk the talk. This is the practical outworking of us being this spiritual temple built up to glorify God. The practical outworking that Paul begins with here, uh, if this is who we are, he says we need to be people who live with humility. So there's three things. There's humility, there's patience, 
and there's gentleness. And humility is all about, Kurt, you can't think too highly of yourself. Kurt, you've got to put others before yourself. That's humility. Uh, further, Paul calls us to be gentle. Gentle. Don't be harsh with each other. Don't be short with each other, but be gentle as Christ is gentle with us. No one in hi human history has been more gentle than Jesus. And so, because he was gentle, we must be gentle with each other. And then Paul says we've got to be patient with each other. We've got to bear with one another in love. What does that mean to be patient with each other and bear with one another in love? It kind of means something like, sometimes, you know, if you hang around here long enough, just like a family at home, this is a church family, you hang around here for long enough, we're going to grate on each other like sandpaper. Doesn't that feel great? Not really. We can grate on each other. We can annoy each other. And you know what? We sin against each other as well. It happens. And the question is, when we annoy each other, when we sin against each other, what does Paul instruct us to do? He says, you've got you to gotta be patient. You've got to put up with each other. Bear with one another in love. And so lovingly, Kurt, you've got to put up with others' sins here and weaknesses here and annoyances here. That's what we do. Be patient. It's what we must do. So the question is, again, why does he instruct us as a church family to be humble, to be gentle with each other, and patient with each other? It's because we've got to protect what Paul calls the unity of the Spirit. Remember this unity thing? Working together, on the same page. We've got to protect the unity uh, in the Spirit, Paul says. All right? Um, we already have this. We've got to protect it. We already enjoy this in Christ. We've got to keep the peace here because the Prince of Peace made peace possible between us and God the Father. He brought us together. And so we've got to be people of peace. In other words, we've got to simply be who we already are in Christ. That's it. It's already there. So let's just live it out. Let's live out this unity in Christ that we already enjoy. That's kind of what he's saying. To cap off this thought, this is a bit of a long thought. There's so much in this passage. To cap off this thought toward, I think it's verses 5 and 6 if you have it in front of you, he talks about one. He says one a lot. Have you noticed that? He says one this, one this, one this, one this, okay? He's speaking about this idea of oneness and unity, all right? And God is all about oneness and unity. Let me prove this to you. Paul says there's one body, one church, universal church, one body, okay? One Holy Spirit, and he dwells within the one universal church. Then there's one hope, there's one future that we all share if we're in Christ. We're all going to the same place. All right, one heaven, okay, one hope, that's what we have. Then he says, there's one Lord, and then we have one faith in Jesus. And then he says, there's one baptism into Christ, okay? And we worship, lastly, one God and one Father of all. So there's so much about God where there's clear oneness, there's clear unity. And because of the oneness in God, we must be one people on the same page, following our one God acting in oneness, one baptism, one faith, unity. That's what this is all about. And that leads us to point number one, if you're following along in the notes there, is simply this, getting back to these three qualities that we talked about, the key qualities that Mercy Hill must walk in to maintain a peaceful oneness, maintain this unity in the spirit, our humility, our gentleness, our patience. I want to flesh this out a bit. I want to ask you this. I know many in this room work a job and you've been in various and different kinds of workplaces in your job history and I'm sure there's been some work environments that have been more positive 
than others. Let's focus on the negative for a second. Maybe you've been in sales. Sometimes in sales, and this is not across the board, but sometimes in sales, there's a lot of competition. In fact, there have been sales environments and work environments where a boss may desire to actually help the employees that work under him or her hate each other. Why would a boss want the, the various sales representatives to hate each other? It's because that boss, he or she, is trying to evoke a sense of competition. That, you know, if, if I can get you to work against this person, they will work harder to, to be up here, and then that other person will work harder to be up here. And if they hate each other and compete against each other, what happens? They make more money. More sales are made. And when the sales reps are making more sales and more money, guess who else is making even more money? The boss, okay? So it, it's amazing that in some cases, some bosses will try to create a very hostile, disunified environment to make more money. Now, as you can expect, there's a very often a high turnover rate. You'll often see this in car sales, okay? That's why there's so many car salesmen and women coming and going all the time. And you'll see that because it's just a very, very difficult, toxic place in which to work. All right, and, and, and why would it be like this? Here's what happens. The boss, basically speed of the leader, speed of the team. So the boss is used to working this way and motivating people this way. And so the sales reps are acting just like who? Just like the boss that, that acts this way to, to create a hostile, a hostile environment there. Okay, and that's, that's what happens. Now, what I just described, should a church family be like that? Of course not. <laughs> Sometimes they get that way though, you know? It's crazy, man. It's happened. I've seen it at various times. I don't see it here. Thanks be to God. But a church family like Mercy Hill is to be nothing like that toxic work environment I just described. No cutthroat actions, no hostility, no competition. There should be none of that stuff. Why? Because in our case, follow the leader. Speed of the leader, speed of the team. Who is our leader? Jesus. Okay, just testing you, seeing if anybody... Was, it's getting warm in here again. I'm so grateful. Uh, and with the warmth comes sleep it's, and napping. It's going to be fun. But anyhow, Jesus, what did he do? What is he like? He's the God man. He left heaven. He descended to earth. All right. And he came down. He put on flesh. And in so doing, went to the cross. He laid down his life on the cross for our sins in our place. On that cross and him dying upon it for us. That was the greatest act of love and self-sacrifice the universe has ever seen. Because God died for us. He didn't sin. No, on him were placed Kurt's sins, were your sins, were, were everyone's sins. And, and that's no greater love than that. And so he set for us an example of, of what? Of humility. Put his own self-interest down. Put our interest up. That's humility. He set forth an example for us of gentleness. Again, no one has been more gentle in, the human, in human history than Jesus. And he set forth for us the ultimate example of patience. And because Jesus is a person of humility and gentleness and patience, he's setting the example for us. So we are to be self-sacrificial people like Jesus. Side note, let me ask you, maybe you're at a point of discouragement right now. Uh, I'm feeling a little discouraged myself these days. I don't know where you're at, but if you've been discouraged at some point in your life, now or historically or maybe in the future, you're down and out, you're mired in, in some sadness, you're mired in a lack of motivation, and 
maybe a friend, a good friend of yours, an honest friend, or maybe a spouse comes up to you, and hopefully your, your spouse doesn't say, would you get off your butt, get going, you know, get over yourself. Hopefully they don't, they don't say that. I don't think that works that well, hopefully. Uh, maybe it does. I don't know. I don't want to talk about that. But imagine your friend or your spouse says, what's going on? Uh, what's, you're, you're not, something's wrong. Like you're, you're, you've lost motivation. You're down and out. You know, let's talk about that. But then your friend or your spouse says, this is not you, Kurt. What's going on? This, this is not you. It's not you. And so it is if we, Mercy Hill Church, if we are not living out the unity of Christ that we already enjoy, like if we're backbiting each other, gossiping about each other, if we're angry and short with each other, when we sin against each other, when we're not listening to each other or asking questions about each other's life, uh, Paul would say to us, Mercy Hill, what's going on? You are not yourself these days. This is not you. This is not you. This is not you. So to sum up this point, the key qualities that Mercy Hill must walk in, that we must walk in, that you must walk in, to maintain this peaceful oneness and unity in the spirit that we enjoy are threefold. They are humility, gentleness, and patience. Lord, help us. Lord, help us to show these qualities to one another. Let's now move on and look at the next part of this passage, verses 7 to 12. You might have it in front of you. It is helpful to have that in front of you so you can check to make sure, you know, I'm actually preaching from the Bible here. This is not Kurt's Bible. Uh, This is God's Bible. Verses 7 to 12, there's a lot here. And let me try to unpack this in a fairly brief way. He first says that grace was given to each one of us. All right? Now, in this context, he is not speaking of saving grace. That's the the free grace gift, unmerited favor of God that he gives to us when we have trust in Christ. Uh, But he's actually speaking about a different kind of grace, and this grace would be the grace of gifts and abilities, spiritual gifts, spiritual abilities that God gives us from his Holy Spirit that we are then to use to serve the church family with these gifts. That's the grace that he's referring to in that verse 7. But before I speak more to that a little later on, You may notice that there's a bit of an interlude, I believe, in in verses 8 through 10. What is Paul talking about in verses 8 through 10? He's actually quoting the Old Testament, Psalm chapter 68, verse 18. Paul is making the point, basically, that when Jesus accomplished, talks about this descending and this ascending thing. So when he descends, he's descending, he's coming down from heaven to earth to work salvation out for us. And then he ascends back, okay? That's speaking of his ascension back into heaven after he accomplished a salvation for us is life, death, and resurrection. And so when Jesus ascended back into heaven, he then goes back into heaven to reign and rule at the Father's right hand to bring about um, salvation and rescue for us. But then Paul says that Jesus ascended and he led a host of, anybody know? A host of captives? Captives is the right answer. <laughs> He led a host of captives. So basically, what is so imagine you're leading a host of captives, and what is that speaking of? Well, we probably assume he's leading the captives of demons. These are probably the minions of Satan that Jesus conquered and defeated through his life, death, and resurrection and ascension. Okay, and these and they're they're being defeated. That's Jesus defeated evil through the gospel. That's probably what's going on here. Then it, so it talks about the captives, then it talks about Jesus giving gifts to men. 
giving gifts to men. You see that there? He is probably referring to the apostles, the, the apest, okay? The apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers that he mentions later in verse 11. This list of church leaders, apest, uh, these are given as gifts from Jesus to the church. Um, and, and let me quickly define these roles. I'm going to quote from the Zondervan NIV Study Bible. And this, this just nicely boiled it down for us. And I thought I would just share this. So bear with me. This is a little technical. But here's what these are defined as and these roles are. Apostles. Firstly, these are church leaders, by the way. All of these are church leaders and roles in the church. Apostles. These are those commissioned by Christ. So think of the 12 disciples who became apostles. Then we have Paul the Apostle as well, directly commissioned by Jesus to proclaim his message and establish the church. Qualifications for this initial group of apostles are found in Acts 1, 21, and 22. Now, beyond that original group of capital A apostles, some believe that there's room for little a apostles, so we're not on the same level of authority and giftedness as those original apostles, but they would put those who start church planting movements. So think of the ministry of Paul. It was all about planting churches and then creating a church planting movement. Well, there are some people who do that same sort of work in the 21st century today, and so they may be gifted with the little a apostle gift. Followed by, so APEST is the acronym, PROPHETS is the next one. These are those who communicate a message from God that is appropriate to the situation facing the church. We have an example, a couple of examples. Acts chapter 11, 27 and 28, and then 1 Corinthians 14, verse 3. Very helpful. Followed by evangelists. Who are evangelists? Well, evangelists are those who reach out. They, they preach the gospel. We see an example in Acts 21 and then 2 Timothy 4. And you may have noticed... There's not many of them uh, evangelists in the church, unfortunately, but it just seems to be how it works. God seems to specially gift certain people in the church with the gift of evangelism. And these are people who easily make friendships with non-Christians. They spend a lot of their time with non-Christians, and they enjoy it. And the reason they enjoy it is because God has placed a burden on their heart to show the love of Christ to them, and when the opportunity to share the gospel comes, they share the gospel. And they are effective at winning people to Christ. It is a wonderful, wonderful gift. I don't have this gift. Uh, and I, I know people who have it. It's, it's a wonderful gift in which to have. We need evangelists. All right. Next, we have pastors or shepherds. This is used figuratively of leaders who shepherd their people. And we have some examples there in your notes. Next, we have teachers. And I'll just read this. There's debate whether the pastors and teachers refers to individuals who have two gifts, i.e. the pastor-teacher, or to two separate groups of gifted people, pastors, and then the teachers over here. The Greek construction, so the original uh, Ephesians was originally written in ancient Greek. The Greek construction suggests that the, two, that the two gifts are related since teaching is an essential part of pastoral ministry. So you can pastor people when you preach. You can pastor people when you teach. It kind of makes sense, doesn't it? But the question is now, why did Jesus send the church these apest gifts? Why? Well, Paul makes it crystal clear as to why in verse 12. Apest's job is to... Anybody know? Equip. There it is. To train the saints for what? The work of the ministry. Why? To build up the church. Isn't that, isn't that beautiful? Okay, Their job is to equip and train the saints, the Christians in the church, to do the work of the ministry. Why? To build up the church so that the church grows. 
The church moves forward. And this leads us to, to point number two in your notes. Mercy Hill's leaders must equip the church family for ministry to build up the church. I don't know how Bruce is doing. I feel bad for Bruce. I'm all over the place today. It's probably driving him crazy, the poor guy. And we're all short on sleep as well, so it just makes it that much better. Uh, let, me, let me try to flesh out this idea of equipping by asking you, have you heard the phrase, I'm working myself out of a job? I'm trying to work myself out of a job. Has anybody used that phrase? Okay, okay, good, good. One of us, good, awesome. <laughs> I, tr I try to use that phrase a lot. Now, what is the idea behind this phrase? What is the idea? Well, hopefully, it's not to just, you know, quit your job and go on EI, you know, and play video games and, and eat chips. That sounds, that sounds great, actually. Anyhow, hopefully it's not that. Okay, there's a, laz I'm, there's a laziness, there's sinful laziness thing in me uh, that likes that idea. But anyhow, no, that's not what I'm, hopefully, don't do that. Uh, the idea between I'm trying to work myself out of a job is this. I am going to do such a good job of training and equipping those around me that are under my care in my workplace that I will essentially make myself dispensable. I will make myself unnecessary to this business, to this organization, to this workplace. Now, I would not say that this is exactly the idea that Paul has in mind here for church leaders, but I think maybe in part. I think this is a healthy mindset for church leaders to have here at Mercy Hill. So in other words, so here's my job. I'll tell you a little bit about my job description. I'm, I'm a pastor here at this church, and so my mission is to train primarily our elder team. There's three other guys, and I need to, and I want to desire to train our elder team to basically just do what I do. Now, these guys have full-time jobs. It makes it difficult sometimes, okay? This is my, my full-time job is to be pastor. They have full-time jobs, and they're very busy. They got kids and all the rest, but I want to train them to do what I do. I want to train them to preach. I want to train them to lead. I want to train them to disciple others, whether they're leading a community group or part of a group, or they are doing this one-to-one -one discipleship thing, which is meeting with other guys, same gender, for coffee, to talk about spiritual things, talk about the relationship with Christ, read a book together, read scripture together, basically talk about how's your walk with Christ going and have some accountability. I do that with them, I praying that they do the same with other guys, and they are. That's what I want to see happen. Then Danny, let's talk about Danny. You may know Danny. Of course, he's one of our elders. He is our worship director. Danny's job is to raise up other musicians, other vocalists, and other worship leaders to do what he's doing, work himself out of a job. Bruce's job as the deacon of multimedia and bookkeeping is to train and equip others to do what he's doing, work himself out of a job. Tammy's job, my wife, children's director, her job is to train and equip others to do what she's doing. So in short, you see where I'm going? A church leader's job is to train up leaders train up new leaders and when you train up these new leaders their job you know what their job is to train up new leaders you know what those new leaders job is to train up new leaders you know who's what jo their job is you see where I'm, i could go on all day like this train up leaders who will train up new leaders who will train up new leaders and to train up new leaders and this might remind you of something does it remind you of something our mission statement as a church to make disciple making disciples of Jesus. And so let me ask you, you might be thinking, I'm not a church leader. This whole point has been a big waste of time. 
I'm so glad I, I have Candy Crush on my phone because I've been playing it and I've been checking Twitter, checking a little Facebook, doing everything but listening to this boring point of a sermon, okay? Hang, no, this is for you too, okay? Let me ask you, disciple of Jesus, parent, okay? Christian, who are you equipping right now? Who are you training right now in your life? Who are you discipling right now? What's their name or names? Who are you training up in the ways of Jesus right now? If you've got nobody, I'm not trying to shame or guilt you. Yes, that can motivate some people, but I don't think it's a great motivator. I just want you to, to change. I just want you to, to initiate something. You know, parents, kids, it's your kids. Training them up in the ways of Jesus, you know? If you got friends, Christian, you got Christian friends, those are the people that you've got to be training up in the ways of Jesus. And then you've got to challenge them to train up others in the ways of Jesus. And on and on it goes. That's how it works. The only reason we are here as Christians today is because someone told us the gospel, someone trained us up in the ways of Jesus, someone discipled us. They say that for a child to stick with Christianity from, from being born in a church environment and staying with it as an adult... For that to happen, they need something like five discipling relationships to carry them through that tra those transitions. What often happens for young people when they become young adults, they if they don't have those relationships, those discipling relationships in place, they will often drift away from the church. And by the grace of God, very often they come back. But if you want to see that transition be a little more smooth, smooth, they need some discipling relationships along the way. And uh, so there you go. That's all i got to say on that point. Let's finish off the passage by looking at verses 13 to 16. Here we see Paul talk about the goal, okay, the goal, what he wants to see happen in the local church. You know what the goal is in church life that he wants for the church? Growth, spiritual maturity, all right, to no, no longer settle. You know, I think OnePlus is a phone manufacturer from China, but I love their, their, their moniker, their tagline, which is never settle, never settle. And so Paul is saying to us, never settle for staying the same way, staying in that same place. Never settle. We need to see growth in Christ. Don't settle for remaining as a spiritual child, needing your spiritual diapers changed. No, 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 no. You've got to move on. Paul sees the key to growing in Christ as, as we are properly trained by, and equipped by our leaders, and he sees the key to growth as honesty. Did you notice that? He talks about speaking the truth in love. There's an, obvi an obvious connection between growth and honesty that he is putting together here. Let's speak the truth in love, not meanness. You know, some people, they say, oh, I'm just being honest. No, they're just being mean. Okay, have you heard that? Found, is there a person in your life, they, just, they say it all the time, I'm just being honest. No, they're just good at being mean. You've got to speak the truth in love with gentleness, okay? Yeah, but we need that honesty so that we help expose areas of needed change in our hearts and in our minds. We're, we often have blind spots. I have blind spots. You have blind spots. That's why we have the church, is to speak honestly to each other in love. Kurt, here's where you need to grow. You know, here's where you need to shape, shape up over here. And that is very helpful. That is a loving action. And when we see across the board this kind of honest communication, this kind of loving approach happening in our church, what is the result? The result is, according to Paul, we are held together. We are joined together. We are unified. We are working together. We are working properly. We are being the church that we are designed by God 
to be, and that leads us to our final point in our notes, number three. Mercy Hill must keep pursuing honest spiritual maturity and growth in Christ to avoid being tossed to and fro in the storms of life. You may have noticed I missed a lot in that passage, but I'm going to now try to cover that missing piece in those last few verses here a little bit. I want to run with this word picture that Paul gives to us, again, about being tossed to and fro by the storm, the waves in the storm. I want you to imagine that you are really cheap like me, like you don't like spending money at all. Okay, some of you can relate, especially if you're Dutch and Scottish like I am. Um, it's very cheap. Okay, so you pretend you're cheap, and you decide, you know what, I need to get from Vancouver to Victoria, like right now. I need to get there. How am I going to do that? Well, I could spend money on the ferry, but because I'm uber cheap, I am going to search the Fraser River and see if I can find an abandoned boat of some kind and then just row my, myself from Vancouver to Victoria to save money. It's brilliant. You think that's a brilliant idea. So you do this. You go to the Fraser River. You find an abandoned little boat. You start rowing your, your way across the Georgia Strait. I think that's what it's called. And about halfway across, that's when it happens. A Pineapple Express storm cranks up and just hits you as you're right in the middle between Vancouver and Victoria. And this is a problem. Winds start to blow in and around 100 kilometers an hour. And as a result, waves are getting bigger. Five, six, eight foot, 10 foot waves are crashing into your boat. What's happening to your pathetic, you know, uh, disgusting boat? It's going to and fro from side to side. And, you know, you're up here and then you're over there. And, and not only do you then turn green from, from seasickness, but it's not long before that tiny little boat is capsized. And at that point, you become whale food. Like, never become whale food. That is not a good kind of food to become. What should you have done in the first place? You should have just coughed up the cash, you know, and paid the, the fee to get on a BC ferry, you know? Why? Because even if a Pineapple Express-type storm hits the Georgia Strait and the BC ferry is only halfway across, are you still going to be safe in that ferry? Yes, you will be safe. Sometimes, even in strong winds, you can barely feel that the wind is even blowing if you're inside that ship. All right, Everyone inside is safe. No one is harmed in the storm. Um, if you're in this massive, stable, secure BC ferry, although that one's looking a little bit rough there, but anyhow, there's a couple in the Fraser River that are decrepit and just left there and abandoned, and that's not a ferry I would want to be in. But anyhow, before I destroy my own analogy here, here's my point. Okay, remember the little boat tossed to and fro, the BC ferry. Investing in your church family. So church life is, is kind of like being in a, in a BC ferry. And if we invest in honest Christian relationships and honest friendships here, and we're investing, you know, generally as best we can outside of illness and surgeries and all the rest, we're investing week in, week out in church life and in the people here, and we're trusting uh, the God that we follow together, we're trusting Jesus together, what are the results in the long haul for us? The results are spiritual stability in your life, where, you know, crazy things like, you know, coronaviruses and and weird politics and the internet, you're, and Netflix and social media, you're not tossed to and fro by social media from day to day. You're not tossed to and fro from, from net, Netflix or 
from what's on the news from day to day. You're, you're not influenced by weird internet cult preachers and internet preachers that are, and, and leaders that shouldn't be saying anything, and yet we're hook, line, sinker. No, we're not, we're not affected by that because we're actually getting doctrinal instruction from our local church family that you know, has a high view of Scripture. And we're not, you know, we're not tossed to and fro by these forces in and around us, and there's very strong cultural winds blowing all the time, wanting to blow Kurt over here and, and accept this truth that contradicts Scripture, and, and then blow over here and accept this truth that contradicts Scripture. That's actually not a truth. And, and being on this BC ferry, which is the church, if you will, protects us from that. i got to tell you, I'm big on the church. Yes, I'm a pastor. Yes, it's my job. But I wouldn't be here if I wasn't big on the church. I mean, there's, there's more opportunities. There's better money to be made outside. But I am here because I believe this church thing that came out of God's mind works. It helps. Church life brings stability to our marriages. Church life brings stability and, and support to our parenting. Church life fortifies our mental health. Study after study after study shows and proves that if you're a part of a regular church gathering, your mental health is strengthened and helped. You know, it helps. And best of all, involvement in a unified, healthy church, it fortifies your soul. It makes you stronger. It puts steel in your spiritual spine. So here's the deal. Keep on trusting in Jesus no matter what storms may come by being a part of a local church family. And those storms, they're coming. I mean, can you not feel the storms blowing right now? We got a virus going global. We got all kinds of stuff going global, politics going global. We got pipelines and, and protests happening. All this stuff is happening. And it's, it's, everything feels really uncertain. But a church family gives us that stability that we need to, to bear the brunt of those storms. And so invest in your church family. Let me just repeat that point. Mercy Hill. Let us keep pursuing honest spiritual maturity and growth in Christ to avoid being tossed to and fro in the storms of life. That's all I got. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for this very helpful passage. This brings hope to our lives when there's so much going on in our world today that is uncertain. And you give us, you, you are our anchor of truth, our, our anchor of hope, Lord Jesus. And we are anchored to you as a church family. We have nothing without you, and so we're, we're grateful. Lord, would you uh, empower us to be patient with each other, humble with each other, gentle with each other, that we would be a church family that supports each other in the storms of life. Keep us unified, unified in the Spirit, unified uh, trusting in you, Jesus, our, our one Savior, our one hope. And just protect us from those forces outside of us that would desire to bring us down. The forces of evil, the cultural forces that are at play. There's so much going on that wants to bring us down. And so we look to you for help and for hope. Protect our church, Lord, from those forces that would desire to pull it apart. Lord, we ask, as I think of those who are, have just undergone surgery and medical procedures recently, those who are sick and unwell in our church family at this time, would you bring healing to their lives? Would you heal them? by your great power, Lord Jesus, and by the authority of your great name. Lord, we come to your table today wanting to remember and celebrate the gospel, and we take this memorial meal to, to honor and to worship you and to examine ourselves. Through Christ we pray. Amen.